Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. As we know, Cass, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of exceptionally beautiful dresses (laughs) to contend with throughout the history of fashion. Um, But not all of them are afforded celebrity status, nor do many of them have their very own Wikipedia page. That's right, because the famous so-called quote-unquote peacock dress is possibly more renowned than even the woman who wore it, Lady Mary Victoria Curzon, the wealthy Chicago-born American turned vicerine of India. And I have to say, today's episode came at the request of a listener, and I am so sorry because I seem to have misplaced that original message, so apologies for not giving you the proper shout-out. Please write to me so I can correct my misfortune. But thank you so much for this inquiry, because the peacock dress might just be the most elaborate and exceptional haute couture dress ever to come out of the prestigious House of Worth. It is certainly one of the most brilliant displays of craftsmanship to be seen in the history of fashion. But what occasion afforded such displays of opulence, you might ask? Well, it would be the 1902-1903 Delhi Durbar, of course. The 1903 Delhi Durbar, or the Court of Delhi, was an extravagant two-week event thrown in Delhi, India, in the celebration of the ascension of King Edward VII to the British throne. And thanks to the far-reaching tentacles of British imperialism, when Edward became King of Britain, he also simultaneously became the Emperor of India. And of course, as we all know, India had been under British colonial rule since the 17th century when the British seeds of colonial ambition were first planted with the arrival of the East India Company, later known as the British East India Company. And the company first landed in India with the intention of establishing trade relations with the Mughal emperors then in power. And and as we have discussed in previous episodes, specifically in season one and our Cashmere with a K episode, some of the company's first imports into Britain were Indian hand-painted and printed cotton fabrics known as chintzes. By the middle of the 18th century, however, the trading company's roots in India had become firmly entrenched with the result that their trading settlements of Madras, Bombay, and Calcutta had developed into what was known as presidency towns as the company extended its sovereignty and influence in the region. These presidencies were manifestations of not just the company's but Britain's expanding colonialist presence in the region, in the country, a presence that would only continue to grow. It was not until 1876, however, that Queen Victoria became the Empress of India under the Royal Title Acts of 1876, and this was celebrated with the first so-called Delhi Durbar in 1877, although this first affair was a decidedly more official occasion than its 1903 successor. Yes. So Viceroy Curzon, who is, of course, Lady Curzon's husband, took it upon himself to throw King Edward the most lavish and extravagant celebration he could think of. Although it is worth mentioning here that, uh, much to Curzon's disappointment, Edward VII did not even attend. Instead, he elected to send his brother and sister-in-law, the Duke and Duchess of Connaught, instead. 
So there's this wonderful book, which is known as The Coronation of Durbar, um, which was published in the commemoration of the Durbar, and it provides us with detailed descriptions and images of this 12 day festival, which is imbued with all of the pomp and circumstance to be expected of a visual display of colonial wealth and power. And, you know, it should not be surprising um, that it sought out to appropriate and capitalize on India's diverse culture and history in this process. Quote, Delhi has, more than any other eastern city, been the scene of historical pageantry, wrote the author. Going on, the ancient capital of India, it was appropriately chosen as the scene of the imperial Durbar. So, Cass, part and parcel to all of this historical pageantry was, of course, dress. And it is on dress that a lot of the international press coverage um, of the event really focused on. Yeah, the publication, and I will post a link to it in the episode summary so you can also check it out because it's mainly images. It provides us with an overview of the official program of the events, which included, among many things, the state entry of His Excellency, the Viceroy. And I should say the Viceroy um, was basically the representative of the British monarchy in India. So we have the state entry of the Viceroy and his Vicerine, Lady Curzon, and then the Elephant Procession, which the author calls, quote, the most striking and to the Western mind, the most impressive of spectacles. It goes on to say, the flower of Indian nobility mounted on magnificent elephants resplendent in cloth of gold with rich saddle cloths laden with priceless embroidery without sweeping the ground on either side. The howdahs, which is the carriage that would have been on top of the elephant, and their princely occupants jeweled with an empire's ransom, represented a spectacle so impressive and so overpoweringly brilliant that the memory almost distrusts itself when recalling the splendor of the sight. And of course, it's these types of descriptions that no doubt went on to inspire and at the time inspired the Euro-American fascination with the so-called exotic East. Yes. And the review of India's ruling chiefs conducted a few days later was equally described in terms of its magnificence in the New York Times, which wrote, quote, the variety of costume and paraphernalia afforded one of the most striking pictures of the Durbar festivities. Contingents from all parts of greater India participated, mostly retaining the distinctive features of their customs. And I'm going to talk about a few of those here. The article goes on to say, the flags and other emblems of the states were carried on camels and elephants accompanied by armored men on stilts, which seems a little dangerous in my book, just saying, (laughs) (laughs) as well as state bards, camel kettle drums, richly caparisoned elephants and horses and agile swordsmen, many shouting battle cries, followed one another in quick succession. The venerable chief of Nabha, escorted by men mounted on richly caparisoned horses and accompanied by hounds and hawks, was a striking feature of the display. And um, just just a quick uh, word on definitions here. A caparison is, is basically the ornamental covering which spread over an animal's harness. So there's that. Yeah, and if you don't already have the idea of kind of the magnificence and splendor of this occasion, I'm going to give you a little bit more. The book goes on to say, quote, almost incalculable wealth of gold and silver was displayed as the seemingly never-ending medley of elephants, camels, troops, musicians, and carriages representing the different Indian states passed and maneuvered before the Diaz. There were trappings of pure silver and sedan chairs of gold. 
The article concludes with a very brief description of the dress worn by Lady Curzon, and while the simplicity of her dress pales in comparison to that which was worn by the Indian nobility in this procession, she's basically described as wearing a violet-colored costume, and that's all. But her dress of the night prior undeniably rivaled it. The New York Times called the 5,000-guest coronation ball. Can you imagine how much food they had to have for that or cocktails or, <laughs> or, or refreshments? Just saying. Um, but it was held on January 6th, one of the most attractive features of the Durbar festivities, said the Times. When a fanfare of silver trumpets at 10 o'clock announced the arrival of the Viceroy, Lord Curzon of Kettleston, the scene was one of unexampled brilliancy. The halls were filled with men in brilliant uniforms and women in rich dresses. But perhaps none as rich as Lady Curzon, who was described as wearing a dress of gold brocade, and it was supposedly paired with, quote, a magnificent tiara and necklace of diamonds with four big rubies. And her dress, you know, sparkled and shimmered with under, you know, all the electric light. So no doubt she presented a, a tremendously resplendent figure. And that is because April, Lady Corzon, wore a dress entirely covered in hand-embroidered peacock feather motifs. So while the dress itself was designed and constructed by the House of Worth in Paris, the jaw-droppingly beautiful textile, which actually the New York Times mistakenly identified as brocade. It was in fact a silk taffeta backed with a tightly woven Indian muslin. This was entirely hand embroidered by master craftsmen in India, utilizing the Zardozzi metallic wire weaving technique. April, can you imagine how she would have shown in this dress? <laughs> as if the peacock feathers weren't <laughs> enough, it also had to be sparkly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Sign me up. Yeah, the peacock feathers, um, and the peacock, I should say, is a symbol of, among many things, royalty in India. So those feathers were created using gold and silver plated threads and wires. And the eye of each peacock feather, well, each was represented by a shimmering beetle wing. And this might seem kind of strange to us today, but this was actually a pretty common decoration in the 19th century on women's attire. This is not the the only dress that we will uh, hear about that has this uh, kind of addition. But the decision to use Indian embroiderers was a conscious choice by Lady Curzon, who intended her dress to represent British patronage of Indian craftsmanship, albeit with undeniable colonialist underpinnings. As already noted, the dress made international news. A Chicago native, a picture of Lady Curzon, even appeared on the cover of the Chicago Tribune. Although none of the numerous black and white images from the period begin to even do it justice, um, so we are very thankful for the fact that the painter William Logsdale captured the supreme elegance and grandeur of Lady Curzon in this stunning peacock dress in full color in a portrait that he did of her in 1909. Um, but sadly, Cass, this portrait was actually done posthumously because Lady Curzon died in 1906 at just 36 years old. Far too young. And while we have William Logsdale to thank for immortalizing Lady Curzon and her splendid dress, we can also thank the Curzon family and the National Trust for preserving the actual dress. Because yes, both the dress and the Logsdale portrait are in the collection of Kettleston Hall, the majestic 18th century English estate of the Curzon family. The family still resides there, actually, but it was entrusted to the National Trust organization, um, who is in charge of its maintenance and preservation. The organization 
organization has been protecting historic homes and its content across the UK since its formation in 1895. The peacock dress is on permanent or semi-permanent displays. It's a little unclear at Kettleston Hall. Um, And this is where historical dressmaker Kathy Hay was first able to view it up close. And it is impossible to discuss the peacock dress without mentioning Kathy because for the past 11 years, Kathy has been on this journey to recreate the dress. And it is her we have to thank for revealing the intricacies of its construction and also its materials. On her website, aptly named thepeacockdress.com, Kathy reveals she, quote, has a weakness for old clothes, very old clothes, and that she, quote, loves to reverse engineer and recreate the clothing of the past so that it can step out of the glass museum case and live again. When Kathy first encountered this dress, she reveled at its beauty, but also realized that time had taken its toll. Over 100 years old, it has been altered and the metallic threads of the dress have tarnished. She wondered not only what it would have looked like when it first was worn, but as a historical dressmaker, she also could not help but imagine what it would feel like to have worn it. And reportedly, April, it weighs something like 10 pounds. Oh, holy moly. That's a lot of embroidery (laughs) and beetle wings. (laughs) Um, And Kathy calls this uh, 10-year pursuit, quote, the most ambitious reconstruction project of all time. Um, Sounds like it. Yeah, have to agree. (laughs) (laughs) She has spent years studying the exact construction of the dress so that she might mirror um, the construction in her own. And it might go without saying that the most complicated, time-intensive aspect of recreating this gown is actually the embroidery. And Kathy spent an entire year trying to emulate the peacock motifs using European-style embroidery techniques before realizing this was just really an insurmountable feat because in one year, she only got one-third of the front-center panel done. And, you know, (laughs) at that speed, Kathy calculated that it was going to take her about 30 years just to complete the embroidery. (laughs) And that's when she kind of had an aha moment, I think, and realized that, you know, to truly do the dress justice and, of course, complete it in a reasonable amount of time, she too should employ Indian master embroiderers like Lady Curzon did in the early 20th century. And I have to say this dress is still in process, April, I'm not going to reveal any more of Kathy's journey here because she and her fellow historical dressmaker, Bernadette Banner, have a series of recent videos about it on their YouTube pages, so you can follow along there yourselves. And we will, of course, post a link to both of these videos in the episode description. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider adding a little peacock into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes, and we would love hearing from you so you can write to us with your very own fashion history mystery question at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes this show possible each week. And of course, thank you to our beloved listeners. We will catch you on Tuesday for our full-length episode. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.